Welcome back to Table Talk. Happy New Year, everyone. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Yvette Gallinar, and I'm super excited this evening, as I always am, especially when she comes to my show, Dr. Laura Sanger. Yay! I am giddy with excitement. I have been telling my church, Dr. Laura is coming back in January. Be in tune. Watch, watch, watch. So welcome, welcome, welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. It's I love being with you. So it's fantastic to be together. Thank you so much. I feel the same way. We um, we're going to be talking a little bit about something that we did together, but it's been a hot minute since we saw each other. I think it was September. Yes, is when we um, when we were together. Where I'm going to stay in just a minute. But for our listening audience that don't know who Dr. Laura is, which I don't know where you've been because she's been on our program several times. Dr. Laura is actually the author of this very amazing book. You see my little notes? <laughs> uh, this incredible book that I want you to know, especially for the Spanish-speaking audience, it is coming in Spanish very soon, very, very soon. But the roots of the Federal Reserve, I don't know if you can see that, tracing the Nephilim uh, from Noah to the U.S. dollar. It is uh, an amazing book that I have highly recommended to so many people. So I thank you for writing that. I can only imagine how long it took you to, but uh, that's a profound book and I encourage people to get their hands on that. And we'll talk a little bit later on about where they can get that. Well, so. Thank you. Yeah, it took four years to research and write that one. <laughs> wow. And four years of probably... Um, every day working on it, I would imagine, because that was really research yes. yeah, yeah, and material. So anyway, thank you once again for, for coming back mm -hmm. uh, on the program. I want to really kind of get right on it because I know we have a lot to talk about, especially um, when we were together in September of 2023, we actually took a trip together. Uh, we had, what was it? 42, 43 people come on um, something like that. Yeah. Something uh, from ESYF and uh, some other folks that came from different parts of the country. And we went to Greece. We did the footsteps of Paul trip. And I've got to say, it was one of those once in a lifetime mm -hmm. trips, right? Even though you never know, we might go again one day, but. <laughs> It was one of those once in a lifetime trips, just like when we've gone to Israel, but the footsteps of Paul trip was by far one of the most revealing, beautiful, eye-opening, adventurous trips I've ever been to. Would you agree to that? I would. Yes. I, I had no idea what we were going to experience and it seemed like every day new adventures unfolded and the Lord just showed up in incredible ways. I, I, yeah, I agree. It was definitely a trip of a lifetime. I was telling our church family when we got back, I, I couldn't get enough of sharing our, our experience there. And, you know, you and I did a few clips, uh, table talk clips over there, a few recordings. I know you did, and you posted several as well that we collaborated with and, uh, I couldn't get enough of sharing with our church family how the Bible came alive for us. It just opened up like a 3D book, quite honestly. 
-hmm. And, and, and I was stunned because like you said, yeah, we had an, an inkling of what we were going to, where we were going to go, obviously, but when you, when you really study the word and you really study exactly the places that Paul went to John as well, right. Mm -hmm. It, it becomes so much more. And, uh, and I gotta say, we learned a little bit from our, uh, tour guides as well. We did, we did yeah. indeed. Yeah. So it was, it was a, a memorable, memorable time together. And uh, I'm sure we'll do some others. I hope. I hope. <laughs> I hope so too. You and Ricky took such great care of me. Aww. It was wonderful to be together. It really was. And you allowed me to tag along in Santorini, which I really appreciate because it can be such a romantic city. Oh. And here I am just following you both. <laughs> I did not feel romantic in Santorini <laughs> because first of all, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that it was going to be so jam-packed. Oh, I know. I know. Uh, and I I think I wore a little bit of heels that day. Really, really bad decision on my part. <laughs> and we were always crunched with time. Yes. So I get nervous when, when I don't like to be late to anything. Um, and I, I like to follow orders. And if our tour guide says, be right. here at such and such time, I freak out if I know that I'm going to run late. So it was hard to, for me to enjoy it as much. So yeah. you tagging along was no problem <laughs> at all. I sweated like crazy that day. I know we both did. It was, <laughs> but it was spectacular for sure. It was. And the pictures we brought back from Santorini were beautiful and many other places, obviously. But yeah, yeah we, so we visited Santorini. We visited uh, museums. That was one of our very first things we did as we visited museums, which there, first of all, I'll preface today by saying that I wish we had like five hours, but I know we don't right. because there, I, if we were to go day by day of what we saw, what we witnessed, what the Lord revealed to you or to me or to Pastor Marsha or whatever, we would be here forever. Mm -hmm. But I know that we visited the first onset was uh, museums. We went to, we stayed mainly in Athens. We visited the Acropolis, the Areopagus, which for me was one of my all-time favorite uh, places because of what happened there. Mm -hmm. uh, Ephesus, wow, Corinth, uh, Philippi, Patmos, woof, Patmos, Thessalonica, and oh, my brain is already remembering all of those places, right? <laughs> oh, the the memories, right? Um, Right. And then we also visited a place called Meteora, Meteora in Spanish, right? Which mm -hmm. we didn't really know what we were going to get ourselves into and what we were going to find, right? I know. That was a so, big surprise. Yes. Yeah, Should so, we tell the folks yes. what happened? <laughs> well, okay. I know you and I both have it in our, in our social media. So we're going to have to refer people if they have no clue. What did we find in Meteora? Yeah. So I'll just tell from my perspective and then you can add yours. Yeah. So I remember, you know, getting to Meteora, it was, um, for those that have never seen pictures of it, it, it's these huge rock formations and they call it Meteora because, you know, they believed long ago that these are deposits from when meteors crashed to the earth. So these massive cliffs, rocks, 
And we drive in a bus, you know, what seemed like all the way to the top, although we weren't Mm -hmm. to the top. And there are these monasteries, you know, positioned up top these huge cliffs. Incredible. And so we got to go to one of them. Well, we went to a couple of them. The first one was Barlam Monastery. And I remember just, you know, walking and um, this was the one where we had to walk up a lot of steps and um, Nani, our tour guide, you know, she kept us in line, always moving and always <laughs> paying attention. And so we get into the monastery and we're walking around doing, you know, taking different pictures, listening to her explain different aspects of it. And we're in this main room where they would hoist up the monks in a bucket, like this large basket. I don't know if you remember that. And I remember just asking the Lord, I said, Holy Spirit, will you help me see what you want us to see here? Like, what do you want to show us? And right after that, um, one of the gals, Omi, she comes up to me and she's a prophetic intercessor, amazing woman. And she said, Dr. Laura, did you see the giant skull? <laughs> I was like, Wait, what did you just say? And she said, did you see the giant skull? It was out front um, right before we entered the monastery. And I, I said, no, I didn't. And she said, I'll show you on the way out. And so on the way out, she shows us and it is unbelievable. Um, so, you know, we asked people on the bus the next day we were, cause I, I was going to do a post on my social media, Instagram, and I didn't want to sensationalize anything. I wanted to right. try and be as accurate as right. we could. So we asked maybe, I don't know, 10 people or so, what's your estimate of how far we were from this giant? Because it was, this giant skull was located in a crevice between these two massive rock formations. And we estimated we were somewhere between two to three football fields or 200 to 300 yards away. Mm -hmm. And you could see the skull with your naked eye, Mm. which, um, you know, just, I have some pictures, it's hard to describe, but um, of the trail that we had just come down and there were people you know, going up to the monastery and we were maybe like a hundred feet away from them. And in the picture, I can see the size of their head, their skulls mm-hmm. um, are about the same size as the skull that's 200 to 300 yards away. Mm-hmm. And so the skull obviously is two to three times at least at the size least. of a human skull. And so I remember we were taking pictures and just blown away. And I asked Omi, I'm like, how did you find it? And she just felt like the Holy Spirit said, look over here. (laughs) So she did. And she's, she found it. And um, it has not been discovered as far as we know by anyone, because Nani has been doing tours for what'd she say? 30, 35 years. Yes. And she's never heard of it. Mm -hmm. Um, Our other tour guide, Aristea, she hadn't heard of it. Um, So it was quite remarkable, but what gets even more interesting is so later that night, I'm falling asleep, just thanking the Lord for the incredible day. Cause I felt like, come on, seeing a giant skull. I mean, that's a gift, right? <laughs> we could never have imagined. Especially the writer of a book such as I this. know, I know. So, and many of us on the trip were blurry fans, yes. blurry feature fans. So it just was like, 
you know, the icing on top of the cake. And so I was thanking the Lord and I was falling asleep. And then I was like, oh no, I should have taken a video because I took all these still photos. And in my mind's eye, I was thinking it would have been amazing for a social media post to pan in, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to start with like the normal camera and then pan in to have people realize how far away it is Mm -hmm. and then capture like a close up. And so I was falling asleep, just regretting the fact that I didn't think to do that because there's no going back. I mean, we're on a tour. There's, there's just no going back. So the next morning we're on the bus, you know, getting ready to drive back to Athens, I think it was. And, um, for those in the audience, we, we were all on WhatsApp. We had a WhatsApp group. That's how we communicated. People would post pictures there. Well, I'm new to WhatsApp and I didn't realize that I had to um, change a setting. So every picture that was posted in WhatsApp got it, got added to my gallery on my phone. Right. So anyways, on the bus the next morning, I'm looking through my, my photos on my gallery and up comes this video And I watched this video and it is, it captures what I wanted in my mind's eye. And so I'm like starting to think people like who posted this? Like, cause I thought it came from WhatsApp. Right. And it turns out no one took the video. And so I started asking everyone on the bus, did somebody take this video? Cause I want to thank you. You're not in trouble. I want to (laughs) thank you for taking this video because it's, exactly what I was hoping for. And there was one gal asleep. Everyone else was awake. No one said they took it. And so we had to wait for that gal to wake up because she might've been the one. And she said, no, I didn't take a video. And so then we realized, I think you helped me realize that it wasn't on WhatsApp. It wasn't available. It was just on my phone. Yes, it was. And then I'm like, Lord, did you, did angels tell what, like what happened? How did I get this video? So it was a very, um, fascinating experience. And and you know, interestingly enough, not everyone saw that. So it's not like a, a big part of the group saw that it was only a handful. It was you, um, Pastor Ricky, myself, uh, Omi, right. Mm-hmm. Omi. And I think and Anna, and, and then the Anna, other, other Dr. Laura was there as well. That's it. Everybody else was going towards the bus. We were the only ones that were left behind watching that. And my goodness, how could it have gotten on your phone? <laughs> I, it was, we, it was one of those days. I think we were on the hunt for for like hours trying to figure out how in the world did that video get on your phone? And man, do you know that I sent that video? I think I mentioned it to you. I sent it to LA Marzulli. I sent it to Derek Gilbert. And I said, check it out. Look what we saw in Greece and Meteora. And they answered me immediately. And they were stunned. Mm. Uh, You know, they, they, agreed with the fact that we said that it was probably that distance away because it looked like that. But I did a little bit of research myself when we got back Mm -hmm. online to see if maybe there's something on, you know, some website or somebody else took a video or pictures of it and maybe wrote about it. Nothing. Right. Yeah. I didn't find anything. So 
that was that was a an experience because who knows how that giant skull got there right right and just the goodness of the father to show us i know <laughs> i know i love so that it it was it was wow i i can't even begin to tell you it was oh, it was a gift it was a For gift sure. to us like saying because you know we we were talking about the subject of the nephilim throughout yes. our trip Right. You know, we touched on your book and there were times where you shared and there were several, several in our group that were very interested in the topic. Mm -hmm. So for that to happen, it was like the Lord was saying, hey, guys, um, yeah, pay attention, pay attention. <laughs> this did exist. And, you know, and this is this is a little gift for you so that you could say know that I'm listening and I'm hearing everything that you're saying and yeah oh it's just you know, so part weird. of me wonders it was that lodged there from the flood you know is that that's what comes to my mind yeah that's what comes to my mind because we can't even imagine we can't even imagine that that cataclysmic event in history mm -hmm. had to have been I mean, there's no word to describe monumental and God right. knows how, you know, the things that happen in this, on this earth. Mm -hmm. And there, there has to be many, many giant bones all over the earth, all right. over the earth. So it, it was, it was very, very interesting. So for those of you that want to see that video, you can check it out on Dr. Laura's social media. I posted it on my, um, uh, our YouTube channel as well. And on our social media, because we collaborated on it. So last I checked, I think it had like something like 2000 some odd views or whatever, but it was spectacular. It was really, really cool. We wanted to share that with our audience. Um, but I know that <clears throat> I know the Lord's been speaking to you and I know the Lord spoke to you in immensely while we were on the trip. And like you and I talked about dissecting it all when we get back and you know really and truly getting to our routine and getting to prayer and asking the lord you know to show you some things and uh i i i know that you and i have spoken in the past and i know that this is one of the topics you've mentioned in other podcasts but it's on spiritual mapping mapping and you touched on it on our trip as well mm -hmm. um quite a bit but what can we learn about spiritual mapping from Paul? Can, do you want to share a little bit about that? I can't yes. wait. Yes. You know, it was, um, for me, it was really enlightening because in all the spiritual mapping that I've done over the past 26 years now, um, I have focused a lot on examples in the Old Testament, like Joshua is the original spiritual mapper. Right. Um, you know, Moses did spiritual mapping as well. He sent mm -hmm. out Joshua and Caleb and the mm -hmm. other spies my eyes were really open to how much spiritual mapping apostle Paul actually did. So, you know, when he would go into a city on his missionary journeys, you know, the first time he was in a city, he would gather some information on the physical, social, and spiritual pulse of that city. And so, you know, he would do reconnaissance and research and that really informed his intercession, you know, how he was praying for the people and also kind of how to effectively communicate the gospel. And that's precisely what spiritual mapping does. Hmm. So when we, um, when we were in Athens, uh, it, that was our first, um, city that we were in was in Athens. Mm -hmm. And when we went to the Areopagus and the Parthenon, 
that's when I really started to recognize what Paul did um, with some of the spiritual mapping. So in the cities, you know, he would take note of statues, altars, temples. He would observe the daily life of the people. He also would discern, you know, what is the spiritual dynamic happening here? What are the strongholds over the city? So in Athens, um, you know, he noted that there was an altar to an unknown God. And I want to read um, Acts 17. This is 22 through 25. Okay. It says, Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now what you worship as something unknown, I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. So they would have been looking at temples right below um, the temple to for Athena, which is the Parthenon. And then, um, you know, there, the Areopagus is up on a hill overlooking all these temples in Athens. And so he's essentially sell, telling them that the Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples built mm -hmm. by hands. So that would have been offensive to them. Right. And then he says, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. So when we think about Paul here at the Areopagus in Athens, now Athens was a place where many of the great philosophers came out of mm -hmm. and back in Greek culture during those days, you know, they built theaters and in those theaters, you know, that's where the folks would go and watch like tragedies and comedies, but mm -hmm. it also was a place where they would have philosophical debates. Mm -hmm. So you would have the students of these great philosophers, they would debate one another and the debates would go on for days. Yeah. And the last philosopher standing, so to speak. So the <laughs> philosopher who was victorious, they were seen as the purveyor of truth. Mm. So here he's, Paul is standing amidst these great thinkers, these intellectual elites, so to speak. And he wasn't intimidated at all. Yeah. And he used the reconnaissance and the research he did through the spiritual mapping mm -hmm. to really effectively communicate that the, the God of the heaven and the earth is the unknown God, the God that you don't know. Right. And he led Dionysus to Jesus. Um, mm -hmm. And Dionysus was, from what um, Nani told us, um, he essentially was like a member of what we would think of as a Supreme Court in, mm -hmm. back in those days. And so for Paul to um, you know, have such an influential person be converted to Christianity um, was beautiful. And that just kind of shows some of the effectiveness of the spiritual mapping. Um, another example is Corinth, but I I didn't, I want to hear a little bit of what Areopagus meant to you because you said it was one of the most influential places. Yeah, because like you said, it, it was one of those places, first of all, nothing's been built upon that. It, that was the actual place the actual rock so you know for me personally i i think that one of the things especially when we've gone to israel um one of the things that are important to me or that i guess affect me the most is knowing that where 
where Jesus stepped, for example, or in this case, where Paul actually stepped on, it hasn't been built upon, and that we were there, it's it's impactful mm -hmm. in a in a profound way for me. And and like if you go to if uh, talking about Israel, if you go to Israel, there there are many places where you go and you know Jesus was there and the disciples were there, but it's not the actual ground mm -hmm. where Jesus put his foot on. And because they it's been built upon through you know so many thousands of years. There was one place, and I can't remember the name right this minute, it doesn't come to mind in Israel where our tour guide. We were, I have a picture that my husband actually, Ricky, uh, saw, saw me just, I was standing um, on a, um, a side of the building and I was just really pensive listening to what the tour guide was saying because that very place, she said that the street there, like the cobblestones or, you know, like the marble stones that we stepped on, for example, in Ephesus, right? That they said in Ephesus um, that it was about 90 or 95% uh, original stones. And that, again, for some reason, that to me is is really meaningful. It's It's a very, very profound thing. And so in Israel that she was saying that that street was not built upon and built upon and built upon that that was the actual street where Jesus would have walked by. So anyway, so going back to the Areopagus, for me, when I saw it, it was just very impactful. I, in my mind's eye, I could see the Apostle Paul standing there mm -hmm. and speaking to these great philosophers, very educated and well um, versed you know, men and, and women, I'm sure. Um, and here he is overlooking these temples. Uh, if I remember correctly, all the way down, um, like where the city is, which obviously it doesn't look, uh, it didn't look mm -hmm. the way it does now, but there, there are the remains of the old temple of Zeus. Do you remember that as well? Yeah. In the city. And so here's Paul getting this bird's eye view of all of these temples, these pagan temples mm -hmm. and having the boldness, because that's one of the things that to me stood out the most about the apostle Paul was the boldness to actually say, Hey guys, like you said, you've mm -hmm. got an inscription here to the unknown God. Let me tell you who this unknown God right. is because I, I, he's not unknown to me. Yes. I know who he is. Let me educate uh, you. <laughs> Let me educate you some more. <laughs> right, right. And, and so, yeah, so that, I, you know, I don't know. That was just for me personally. It was one of those instances, just like also in, in uh, Ephesus, you know, when yes. you walk down those marbles and they, and the, the I remember trying yeah. to do a little video while I had the headsets on and here's the tour guide saying these marble stones, 95, 90, 95%, I don't remember now, are the actual marble stones where you know, back in, you know, 2000 years ago, whatever it was. Oh my goodness. It just means yeah, so much. phenomenal for sure. What do you think? And it's, it's interesting too, because, you know, knowing what we know about land and I, I speak a lot about this, you know, when it comes to spiritual mapping land, um, <clears throat> it carries the frequency of what's been done on it. Um, in the past, wow. Wow. whether that's a blessing or a curse. And so, 
you know, Moses, when, when the Israelites passed through the Red Sea and they get to the other side, he and Miriam release this prophetic worship. Well, mm -hmm. that worship gets deposited into the land itself and it reverberates for generations to the point where the very things they, they spoke through their song or they sang through their song, those things happened and Rahab rehearsed those back and said, this is why the people of Jericho are essentially frozen in fear. And it, mm -hmm. so the, the worship and the, the words that are spoken, the things that are done on the land reverberate for generations. So when mm -hmm. we can step onto the land where apostle Paul was or Jesus or John, um, the revelator, it, it does. It impacts you. Like you can't even put words to it, but your body responds because, yes. you know, with quantum physics, we know that everything has a frequency. Mm -hmm. And so the, the land, the frequency that's coming from the land itself reverberates with the cells in our body. And that's why I think more revelation is opened up. Mm. The Lord can speak to us, um, in particular areas where there's blessing that has been sown mm -hmm. into the land. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, it was profound. I think the other place that I really saw the impact of Paul's spiritual mapping was in Corinth. Yes. And that was towards the latter end of our trip. Um, yeah. and so Corinth, um, you know, Corinth was this place that, was well first of all it was the wealthiest port in the entire region back you know in Paul's day because they had two ports they were located both on the Aegean Sea but they also had a bay of Corinth which was on the Mediterranean so that meant that the Corinthians could do commerce with both Asia and Rome that's why it was the wealthiest port right. well Corinth also was just this wild place filled with licentiousness. In fact, um, they uh, had just, they had a saying um, about the fornication that would happen in Corinth. And um, the saying is uh, Corinthio Zemo. So the, the word for fornication or to practice fornication was Corinthio Zemo. Um, in other words, to Corinthianize somebody meant to practice fornication because it was so filled with licentiousness. Um, and what you had was um, sailors, you know, they would come into town and they would just engage in all sorts of debauchery. And it was really like the Las Vegas of the ancient mm -hmm. world. Although I think it really puts Las Vegas to shame. It makes Las Vegas seem like child play, given mm -hmm. what was going on. There also is this slogan that not everyone can go to Corinth. And what that meant is that not everyone could handle the vile excesses mm -hmm. that were happening in Corinth. Wow. And so the people that would go there would live it up. And, and Corinth had this culture of being this pleasure now. So whatever brings you pleasure is fair game. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, we learned while there that um, Aphrodite was the protector deity of mm -hmm. Corinth. And um, I did, you know, some research before going to Corinth and learned that every female was required at one point in her life to serve as a shrine prostitute uh, to 
Aphrodite. So um, Herodotus, the Greek historian, he writes this, he says, the foulest Babylonian custom is that which compels every woman of the land to sit in the temple of Aphrodite and have intercourse with some stranger once in her life. Many women who are rich and proud and disdain to mingle with the rest drive to the temple in covered carriages drawn by teams and stand there with a great retinue of attendants, but must sit down in the sacred plot of Aphrodite with crowns of cord on their heads. There is a great multitude of women coming and going. Passages marked by line run every way through the crowd by which the men pass and make their choice. Once a woman has taken her place there, she does not go away to her home because some stranger has cast money into her lap and had intercourse with her outside the temple. But while he casts the money, he must say, I invite you in the name of Melita, which is the Assyrian name for Aphrodite. Hmm. And it doesn't matter what the sum of money is, the woman will never refuse for that would be a sin. The money being by this act made sacred. So she follows the first man who casts it and rejects no one. After their intercourse, having discharged her sacred duty to the goddess, she goes away to her home and thereafter there is no bribe, however great that will get her. So here you have these women that have to do this. They have to go outside of the temple of Aphrodite in this brothel and they have to sit there and wait until a man throws money in their lap. Well, imagine the beautiful women probably were selected first and so mm -hmm. didn't have to spend much time. But those that weren't beautiful could have sat there weeks or months, wow. who knows how long until someone, a man cast money into their lap. And so it just was this vile place. And then um, the Greek geographer Strabo, he talks about or wrote about how um, the temple of Aphrodite was so wealthy that it owned a thousand slaves. So these were men and women that were dedicated to Aphrodite. So Aphrodite was known as the goddess of love. And here you have this perverted, twisted love, erotic, sensual love yeah. that's happening all throughout Corinth. And it's interesting because, you know, Paul's recognizing this and it impacts the letters that he then writes to the right. Corinthians, mm -hmm. because we get the most beautiful chapter on love right. and godly love. So he is trying to, to bring the Corinthians into an mm -hmm. awareness of what love truly is, mm -hmm. which is amazing. And then the other thing is, you know, as Paul was walking around the city, he noticed that they worshiped a God of healing or a God of medicine, mm -hmm. um, Asclepius, mm -hmm. and they had all these statues of body parts. Mm -hmm. And, um, our tour guide really helped us understand that, you know, they believed that if they dedicated a part of their body to this God, then they would have healing. Mm -hmm. And so what Paul recognized with all these body parts, statues throughout the city is essentially what the Corinthians were doing is they weren't seeing that their, their body is a whole, um, rather they were fragmented and essentially dedicating portions of their body to different gods. And mm -hmm. so again, it impacts the way that he, um, communicated the gospel message. And that's why in first Corinthians 12, you know, he teaches about 
the body of Christ and how it functions. And I want to read, um, this is 12, verse 12 through 27. This is just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit. So as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if a foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. So he's speaking against this fragmenting that they were doing. It says, if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. So I love that as Paul is walking around, um, you know, Corinth, he's recognizing the strongholds that have gripped their minds and he's bringing truth to that. The other thing that was amazing about Corinth is that's where Paul met Priscilla and Aquila. And they had, they were refugees from Rome. They had to leave Rome because of the persecution and it was this divine connection. And I just love how the Lord does that because they became really influential co-laborers for Christ. And they actually, they traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the beautiful things to recognize though, is that of the six times in scripture that Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned, Priscilla is mentioned first four times. So their names are Priscilla and Quilla four times in scripture. Mm -hmm. And the significance of that is um, in, in those times, you would not put the woman first in a list of a couple unless she held a place of authority. Mm -hmm. And so here is out of Corinth, a place that objectified women Here's an example of Priscilla being the first woman leader in the Christian church, in the early church. And I absolutely love that because it really shows just how God can redeem land that's defiled, a city that's defiled. And one of the things that I didn't know that our tour guide shared with us is within two centuries of when Paul was ministering, she said most of the Corinthians converted to Christianity, mm-hmm. which is so encouraging because this is exactly what spiritual mounting does. What it does is it pulls, it lifts the veil of darkness over a city 
so that the gospel message can be communicated. And that's what Paul did in his time there. Um, I think he was there 18 months. Um, but Paul didn't see the fullness mm -hmm. of the harvest when he was alive. It was centuries later that the fullness of the harvest came in. And that's can be really encouraging to us that, you know, labor in these ways where, you know, we're praying for cities for decades um, to not give up because we know what we are sowing, those seeds that we're planting mm -hmm. will have an impact for generations to come. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought all of those things up. And if we could try to, you know, dissect all of that. Um, it, you know, we'd be here forever, but you touched on, uh, the whole, it, first of all, you, you actually preached a message I gave when I came back to, uh, Florida after our trip, because I, I always tell our church this, and I tell people as much as possible is if we don't really study, uh, the history of the church, the history in the word, um, look into also the history books and other, you know, well-known writers of what, um, what was going on at the time in each of those places, we miss a lot of it. And so I came back and I gave a message regarding exactly what Paul, um, meant by when, um, when he wrote that letter about the different body parts. So you read that scripture, not knowing the history, not knowing where his mindset is, or not realizing that his audience understands exactly what he's writing about. And so I remember when our tour guide mentioned about Asclepius and I thought, or Asclepius, I don't know uh, how you pronounce it, but Asclepius is what I've been uh, kind of saying. It, when, I, when we found out about this, you know, little G God that they would worship and, and really and truly started to understand where Paul was coming from, then it, it's, it's eye-opening. And I think that that's really important for us as, you know, Christ followers to understand when we, when we read scriptures, right? It just enriches our, our understanding. It enriches our, you know, walk with God, right? So I remember um, also you said something about, uh, oh goodness, now I can't remember in the, in what you were talking about, but the reconnaissance and the. And, and what Paul was doing, uh, oh, I know what, I know what it was. Just recently, going back to the land. Mm -hmm. So I started reading at the beginning of the year, I started reading um, Genesis all over again. As a matter of fact, this coming, this month in January, we have a series entitled uh, Created, and we're going to be going through the book of, of Genesis as much as possible for our series. But speaking about the land, you remember when, when God uh, was calling on Cain for killing his brother Abel. Mm. And he said that his blood was crying out to him mm -hmm. from the land. And so, um, and then coupled with that, um, so Pastor Ricky and I have been, um, we did a table talk the other day about um, our fast. We start our 21 day fast this coming uh, week on the 7th through the 27th of this month. And I was reading the scripture, if my people who are called by my name 
will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, repent, you know, and all that. And then, and then at the end, the Lord says, and I will heal their land. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand that, then you go, well, here, what do you mean heal your land? Well, there's a lot of curses on lands, mm -hmm. you know, and there's a lot of, you could, you could have, you could speak blessings and a land could have blessings, but it all, also can have curses. Mm -hmm. right so anyway i i just those kind of things were popping up in my head while you were saying mm -hmm. um you know about the reconnaissance and the spiritual mapping so it's very profound it's such a profound it thing mm -hmm. um i also have um a future table talk with vicky joy anderson i don't know if you're familiar oh. with her so yeah. yeah she's the writer of of a book on sleep paralysis i'm gonna have her on soon but uh while i was reading her book uh, she mentions Asclepius. Mm. And so I communicated back and forth with her. And we're going to be touching on that when, when we have our next table talk. Because oh, great. It, it's got to be one of those situations where you're like, for me, it's almost as if, I guess I shouldn't say almost, it's, it's the Lord really showing me, listen, you're on the right track keep studying, mm -hmm. keep digging in, mm -hmm. keep teaching it, keep yeah. preaching it kind of thing. So I, I, I don't know. It's just one of those, it, God connects those dots, right? I love it when he does that for sure. Yep. Gosh, yeah. gosh. Um, okay. So I wanted to ask you then learning about discernment. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we know that um, discernment is is vital in in our walk with God. Mm -hmm. We need to know His voice. We need to understand when He when He gives us special discernment for things. Talk about the adventures with the Holy Spirit and learning to discern. Well, um, I had fun on the trip doing this. So the first. The first full day when we were in the National Archaeological Museum. Yes. <laughs> um, that was very interesting um, experience. I I struggled a lot <laughs> in that museum for various reasons. One of which we were still jet lagging. Um, yeah. Second, we walked at such a slow pace. <laughs> It was painstakingly <laughs> slow and my back was screaming at me. I was in so much pain. I'm like, I don't know what, I, I don't know if I can endure this. And it was like day one of the trip, right? It was actually day one was the hardest. Everything else was amazing. So um, anyways, we're in the museum. Nani is telling us um, about all these different portions of the museum and we're, um, we're, at a place where there's a statue of Zeus yes. and I'm, you know, we're all kind of encircled around this statue while she's explaining, you know, the history of it and I'm standing behind it. So the, the back end of this statue, and then she starts talking about the eyes of the statue that the eyes um, used to be jewels and they were lost at sea um, because I think they found this statue mm -hmm. in the Aegean sea. Mm -hmm. So, um, I thought, well, that's interesting. So I walked around to the front and saw the eyes of these statues and, um, they, so in the physical realm, they were just holes because yes. the, the original eyes were no longer there. 
but this statue had uh, one or two watcher spirits in it and it was very intense and it was a, a penetrating uh, look. And um, so I saw these watcher spirits and I thought, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. And I just asked the Lord, I'm like, what, what would you have me do? And whenever I discern watcher spirits, um, generally the Lord will have me just render them deaf, mute, and blind mm -hmm. that they cannot um, communicate uh, because what watcher spirits are like spies essentially, or they're you know, they observe and then they report back. Um, so they're kind of low on the totem pole. If you want to, you know, as far as like hierarchy mm -hmm. in the realms of darkness, um, but they have very important jobs and that is to report, um, what they see. And so, um, I did that. I prayed and then the Lord just had me, um, walk around this statue twice. And I was just praying in tongues, and so um, after that, I thought, oh, okay, so I can make this uh, museum even more interesting by just practicing my discernment because there were so many statues and so many, you know, heads all over the museum. <laughs> so um, in one room, there were statue upon statue. And so I just, I was like, okay, Holy Spirit, help me discern which of these have watcher spirits and which don't. And so I would go around and and then the holy spirit nudged me and to grab you and ask you have you ever discerned a watcher spirit and you hadn't at that point and so i explained what it feels like and so when you look at sometimes they can be in uh you know statues like what we experience they can be in portraits um they can be in animals like living animals ravens birds you know that sort of thing but when you look at the eyes, if the eyes seem like they're penetrating through you, mm -hmm. then there's most likely a watcher spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I explained that to you and you were spot on right from the get-go. <laughs> you're like, yep, that one has one. Nope, that one doesn't. Yep, that one has one. Yeah, that, that, that. <laughs> we began to shoot them down <laughs> with the words. That's right. That's right. Um, so that was, I mean, that was um, just an adventure uh, in our time in Greece. Um, and the other thing I'll say this too, um, for those that are discerners or, um, you know, want to grow in that gifting, it can be hard too, because, um, when you discern things like I, I am not strong in discernment. Um, I have to focus and then I can discern my, um, our oldest son, he is a discerner and he doesn't have to focus at all. Like he can walk into a store and just, he's hit with whatever is spiritually the junk that's in there. He can get hit with a headache. He can get sharp pains. He can, you know, have stomach cramps, feel dizzy. So sometimes discerning, um, for those that are strong discerners can be rather challenging. And, um, when we were in Patmos, I was so looking forward to mm. being in Patmos. Mm. And for me, it actually was kind of a disappointing experience, um, but beautiful things happened after it. And I gleaned from others. So I feel I'm so grateful, but for me being on Patmos, I just wanted to soak in the Lord's presence there and like what you were saying about the Areopagus, um, it, 
they build shrines. Yes. On top of these incredibly sacred places and the shrine that's built um, where John's cave was, I, know. I, I walked in and immediately I got hit with an intense headache. And unfortunately it distracted me so much. I couldn't enter into the beautiful blessing of being there. And I regret that. So I just share that in case that's helpful for others. Um, you know, discernment can be challenging at times and you really have to learn how to, okay, I recognize the spiritual junk that's here, but Lord, help me put that aside so that I can get everything, the blessing that you want for me to get. And I feel like I didn't tap into that fully in Patmos. Yeah. And I agree. Cause that happens in Israel as well, especially when you go to, um, the first time we ever went, we went to Bethlehem and, um, you know, the, the birthplace of Christ. And so I, I get, I get it completely. It is a big disappointment. Um, but I want to go back real quick to, uh, you mentioned watcher spirits. And of course we had that conversation on the trip and it opened my eyes to what you were meaning, but for, for the sake of, of the audience, would you say that these are demonic beings that are within these uh, statues. And like you said, they're watching, they're being watchful of people. And mm -hmm. like you said, reporting back, would you consider them demons? Would you consider them? I know you said they're the bottom of the totem pole. How, how would you describe that as, as a watcher? That's a great question. <clears throat> um, I consider them to be spirits, not necessarily demons. Um, okay. so, but you could argue both ways. Um, yeah. essentially they are, they have an assignment, um, generally from like a principality or right. so in that, that particular watcher spirit was connected to Zeus and right. was, um, taking orders from Zeus <laughs> And so that's why I had to silence um, and confuse the language mm. or confuse any messages that got picked up right? Um, so that it wasn't reported back because we, you know, the Lord sent us there on assignment. Oh, yes. And um, oh, yes. we, I feel like we accomplished everything the Lord had sent mm -hmm. us there for, which was incredible. Um, and so right from the get-go though, had we not silenced those watcher spirits, that was day one. Yes, it was. I think we could have had a very different experience. And we um, weren't supposed to go there, if I remember correctly. Correct me if I'm wrong. That's right. That's right. It got added to the trip. That's right. right. Absolutely. And yeah. so for me, when I, when I walked around the front side of Zeus, it was like a bone chilling glare. Hmm. And it was an intimidating spirit, um, that was, that was watching. And so I just stood there in the confidence of the Lord and I'm like, mm -mm. and, and, you know, we just take authority when the Lord, um, leads us to those things. So anyways, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah, that helps. That helps. And, and that's also one of the uh, most important reasons, reasons why we have to be very careful of what we buy and bring into our own homes, mm -hmm. because there mm -hmm. are so many 
you know, times where people want to buy things from different parts of the country or what, wherever, and it might seem like something very, you know, typical of the place you're visiting. I mean, I know that there are a lot of folks that bring like, or have busts, and that's not meaning that those busts, uh, all of them have a watcher right. spirit, obviously, right. like we were talking about, but you have to be very careful. And that's where the discernment part comes in. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So get yes. rid of it if you have one. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody out there? <laughs> but yeah, we learned so much. I wanted yeah. to ask you also, what are some lessons from Paul on how to guard our emotional reserves? Yeah, I just, you know, I was so impacted by being on the land where, you know, Paul ministered and just knowing my own physical limitations. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we traveled by bus everywhere. Mm -hmm. Paul walked I know. Okay, in the heat, in the dirt, in the elements Oof. and Greece is like 80% mountainous. So, um, that really impacted me. And so I was thinking about, um, when I got back from the trip, um, a passage that I think really has, um, impacted me is Philippians 4, 12. And it says, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. Mm -hmm. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And I've really been challenged by this because I'll speak um, in a few minutes about um, Philippi and what we experienced there. But the Philippians receiving this letter from Paul, they would have known the torture that Paul endured in Philippi. And so here's, a, here's somebody that has learned no matter the circumstance that he can be content and I feel like that is so important for us to learn that secret of being content because this Nephilim agenda that I talk about, they create essentially a revolving door of societal trauma. Mm. You know, when we think about in the last four years, we've been through a pandemic, we've been through riots, we've been through soaring inflation, we've had bank closures, and we've had threats of World War III. And all of that is by design. And now we're headed into an election year. And so, you know, it's so important that we learn how to develop resiliency because it's almost guaranteed, you know, I'm certainly don't want to curse our year, but we can, we should be prepared in case there is more societal trauma that plays out. And, you know, fear is one of the most powerful drivers of mind control. And Nephilim hosts, you know, they know they have to create fear and panic in the masses so that they can roll out these draconian measures that, you know, steer us, funnel us towards this one world government. And, you know, in 2020, you know, you think back under normal circumstances, there is no way Americans would agree to a lockdown and surveillance. But in 2020, we lost our minds and that was because of fear. We came under that mind control and, and I liken it. I mean, really it is psychological warfare. Yeah. And, you know, I talk about it in, in the sense that we've been lured into this war of frequencies, which really is unconventional warfare. 
And if we can recognize it, then we can rise above it, which is the good news. Um, and I think, you know, in our first interview together, I talked a little bit about this, um, but I think it's, it's worth reviewing just a little bit because we're heading into this election year and right. we do need to develop this resilience. And that's what Paul had mm -hmm. um, is resilience, no matter yeah. the circumstances. And so, you know, we, we talked a little bit about quantum physics, but one of the things that we've learned over the years, now that, you know, a lot of, a lot more people understand quantum physics is that all matter has frequency. Mm -hmm. Well, not only does matter have frequency, emotions carry a frequency. And so, you know, for example, fear is one of the lower frequency emotions, whereas love is one of the higher frequency emotions. And since the outbreak of the virus, you know, so many people came under the spell of the globalist mind control tactics because they gave in to fear. Yeah. Well, when you think about it, instilling fear in the hearts of the masses is a hallmark trait of the Nephilim and their giant mm -hmm. offspring. Think about Goliath, right? Goliath yeah. used that fear and intimidation. 40 days, he would show up mm -hmm. on the front line of the Philistines and just hurl curses at the um, Israel's army. And it paralyzed them in fear. Good. Well, I think, you know, the biggest, one of the biggest tragedies in the last several years is that people literally have become incapacitated by mm. fear. Mm -hmm. And then of course, you know, the mainstream media, they know they're the, this propaganda machine. Mm -hmm. They understand that a constant flow of fear-based messaging will keep the masses stuck in their primitive brain where they can't access rational thought. And that's because, you know, fear originates in the amygdala. It's that part of the brain that's known as, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the primitive brain, the reptilian brain. Mm -hmm. um, and so when we're fearful, our ability to process nuanced information is impaired. So we're likely just to blindly follow others without really using our critical thinking skills. Right. Well, what happened with this pandemic is it exposed this deep yearning for life to be good again. Mm. And that didn't come about because of COVID-19. We have, it, it's actually innate within us yeah. because when you think about it, when Yahweh created humanity, he intended us to live in Eden, mm -hmm. this idyllic environment where all of our needs would be taken care of. Mm. But then when Adam and Eve got expelled from Eden, Eden, humanity really has been longing to return ever since. Mm -hmm. And so this is, um, I, re I read a book by John Eldridge called Resilient. Mm -hmm. um, excellent book. I highly recommend it. And he talks about um, that, that that was the origin of the primal drive for life. And so in the depths of our being, you know, we have this desire for life to be filled with purpose and meaning and joy. Well, what happened with the pandemic is it, it tapped into the well, the deep well of reserves that we had emotionally, and we had to pull on those deep wells just to cope and survive. And Eldridge talks about like this trauma cycle that happens. And what he says is, we rally in the face of harm. And when the harm subsides, we just live in denial of it and go off in search of some taste of Eden. Well, I think, you know, many people still have not fully recovered mm. from the emotional reserves that they had to expend during that whole COVID season. And I, 
it leaves them ill prepared for the next major crisis. And, you know, as I mentioned, this Nephilim agenda is really this revolving door of societal trauma. And so that's why it's so important that we develop this resiliency. So then the question is, how do we do that? And I think a good question to ask ourselves is, where do we draw our strength from? Or mm-hmm. probably a better question is whom do we draw our strength yes, from, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. And we talked about the Israelites earlier, but you know when they left Egypt, they saw the miraculous hand of God part the waters of the Red Sea. They pass through on dry ground. Mm-hmm. They get to the other side and they turn around and watch those same waters come crashing down on the Egyptian soldiers and swallow them up. Yeah. And you would think something that spectacular would have sustained their emotional reserves for the hard times they faced in the desert, but it didn't, it didn't take long for them to want to turn back and go back to Egypt. Yeah. And this is the land of their enslavement. And so it's like, how, how could they have done that? Why would they have wanted to go back to the land of their enslavement? Hmm. And when you realize that they were experiencing that primal drive for life to be good again. So you think about people um, in 2020 and 2021, for example, you know, people were promised if you just get the jab, then life will be normal again. You can get back to going to concerts and traveling and all of this stuff. So people fell into that trap because of that primal drive for life to be good again. Well, for the Israelites, you know, when they were in the desert, they were faced with scarcity of water, lack of food, mm-hmm. and that stirred this deep dissatisfaction within them. And instead of leaning into the Lord um, mm-hmm. for their strength, they wanted to go back to Egypt because it was familiar. You know, yes. it's what, it's what they knew the uncertainty of what they were facing in front of them was worse than the enslavement they were under. Yeah. And I think so often, you know, we want to do the same thing. We look for that temporary comfort mm-hmm. um, to sustain us because we're uncertain of what lies ahead. And that's why it's so important that, um, you know, we can develop that resiliency. And that's what I think was so amazing about the apostle Paul. You know, I I mentioned that in Philippi was probably for me, the most profound, um, of all the locations we went to. And, um, it it's there that I recognized all that the apostles endured to spread the gospel. Um, so just a little background for your listeners with Philippi, um, you know, I mentioned that Greece, the landscape of Greece is mountainous. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. spectacular, Mm -hmm. spectacular. But when we read about in Acts 16, um, you know, when Paul and Silas go to Philippi, they first land in Neapolis, which is where we went. It's a port on the Aegean Sea. And, you know, they would have walked 10 kilometers on the Via Ignatia to Philippi. Well, that's not an easy stroll. Philippi is in the mountains. We got driven there by bus. Mm -hmm. Paul and Silas had to walk. So anyways, they get there. And um, when they first arrive in Philippi, they look for uh, worshipers of God. 
and they go to the river because in Philippi, there weren't enough Jews to build a synagogue. So the, the worshipers would go to the river and that's where Paul, um, shared the gospel. And Lydia was the first Western woman to be converted and baptized. And, you know, she was a very influential woman. She was a businesswoman. She dealt in purple cloth, which meant she would have been dealing with the aristocrats, the elites of society, royalty. Uh, so here is like this huge harvest or, I guess the the number isn't huge, but an influential person coming to know Jesus. And that would have, I'm sure, been just one of those days where Paul and Silas were like, yes, you know, this is awesome. (laughs) And so often what happens in ministry, as you well know, is, you know, we have this amazing time of ministry. The Lord does these incredible things. And then the enemy strikes Mm -hmm. and that's what happened for Paul and Silas. A few days later, the slave girl begins following them Mm -hmm. and she's harassing them. And she says, these men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. Mm -hmm. So she was speaking the truth, yeah, but she probably was speaking it with a mocking spirit and harassing them. And so Paul finally, after a couple of days, got so frustrated, Mm -hmm. he rebuked that spirit, cast it out. Well, that spirit was given to her by the Oracle at Delphi, and she was able to tell the future, which earned her masters a lot of money. So when Paul cast that spirit out, the masters no longer had their revenue source and they got really upset. Mm -hmm. So they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them to the Agora, which we saw while we were there, um, the remains of the Agora. And they brought them before the Roman magistrates. So the Roman authorities ordered them to be stripped naked and flogged. So I want to pause there for a minute because imagine going to a really large farmer's market, super crowded, massive farmer's market, and you you are ordered to be stripped naked in front of these people. I mean, that alone would be so humiliating. Oh my goodness. That was just the beginning of their very bad day. So they get stripped naked, then they're flogged. And, um, in other parts of scripture, it talks about, um, that they were beaten with rods. Mm -hmm. Now, some scholars believe those were metal rods. Others think they were made of birch wood. Mm -hmm. Well, what the Romans would do is they would train their strongest men to, exact the most pain from these kinds of beatings. I mean, they were merciless. And that's why in Acts 16, 23, it refers to Paul and Silas being severely flogged, but we don't actually know how many lashes they got because the Romans didn't adhere to the Mosaic law. Mosaic law is, and pastor Marcia helped me see this on our trip. Mm -hmm. Um, the Mosaic law is 40 lashes minus one. So 39 lashes, but the Romans didn't have to follow that. So we don't know for certain how many lashes, um, but what happened with these beatings is most of the time the victims would die Mm -hmm. because the Romans, they were skilled in the dark arts of inflicting great torture. So I was reading up on, okay, what, what are these beatings um, that Paul and Silas endured? And there was two types of beatings um, with metal rods. So We're not sure which one um, was used on them. 
The first one, uh, they would take the victim's hands and they would tie them behind their back, much like a straight jacket so that they couldn't have you know, movement of their hands and they would throw them on the ground while they're laying face down. They would lift their legs up and beat their feet with metal rods to the point where they were bloody and maimed and broken. In fact, most often the victims of this beating were crippled for life, but Paul needed to walk. Yeah, He needed, I mean, on his missionary journeys, he is walking most places except for when and by ship. And so, um, if it wasn't that kind of beating, the other one was they would beat the body entirely. Um, and most victims that was fatal for them, they wouldn't have survived. So while we don't know which kind of beating Paul and Silas received, we can be certain it was brutal and they probably were near death. (sighs) So as if that weren't bad enough, then they were ordered into maximum security prison with their feet in stocks, which means they couldn't move their feet at all. And we got to see that prison cell. And for me, that was the most impactful. Um, Mm. I just wept and wept Mm. um, being on that ground where Paul and Silas were housed or imprisoned. And, you know, you think about, (laughs) I thought about here, I think I had bad days. Mm. I hear you. This, none of my bad days even come close in comparison to what they went through and how did they handle it? You know, I, I fell apart when, um, our youngest son was near death as a baby for a good, like year and a half, I fell apart. Yeah. I did not have resilience, um, for that crisis, Mm -hmm. but here's Paul and Silas, you know, they've gone through this incredibly torturous experience And what do they do at midnight when you would think they'd be passed out, exhausted? They are worshiping and Mm -hmm. they are praising. And that worship shook heaven and earth Yes, for that great earthquake. And so I just have been, that has something that has really stuck with me is how, how are they capable of that? You know, where did they develop that kind of resilience And I think we have a clue in second Corinthians 12, this is verse seven through 10. Paul says, even though I have received such wonderful revelations from God. So to keep me from becoming proud, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to torment me and keep me from becoming proud. Three different times. I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weaknesses and in the insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And so I love that because Paul's resilience was otherworldly. It didn't come Mm. from inside of himself. Like, It didn't originate within himself and his resilience. He could draw on because it was the strength of the Lord. And Paul understood, you know, when, when we're weak, that's when Jesus gets to show off. That's when his power and his strength, you know, comes through us. And so I think about the times that we're living in, you know, I, I believe we're getting closer and closer. If we're not already in the days of Noah, I think we're approaching the days of Noah Mm -hmm. as in the end times, the end of days. 
And Jesus says in Luke 21, 36, he says, and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the son of man. Mm-hmm. So I think about that strong enough to escape. And I, um, that's the Greek word katoskuo. And it means to be strong to another's detriment, to prevail against, to be superior in strength and to overcome. And it's actually only used two other times in scripture. One is in Matthew 16, 18, where um, Jesus is saying that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Yes. And so here in these days that we're living in, Jesus is calling us to be strong, but he knows that the only way that we can be strong enough to withstand persecution and troubling times is if we cling to him. Mm-hmm. And so he's offering us his strength. And it's not, it's not our own strength. It's a supernatural strength. That's part of his being. And when we have Jesus inside of us, we can draw from that strength. And I love um, Hebrews 6, 18 and 19. It says, we who have run for our very lives to God have every reason to grab the promised hope with both hands and never let go. It's an unbreakable spiritual lifeline reaching past all appearances right to the very presence of God. Mm. So I love that because when we surrender, you know, our lives to Jesus, the Holy Spirit indwells us, which means we have the power of the living God within us. And we would be fools not to tap into that. Right. But I know I haven't at times in crisis. Sure. I've been too focused and distracted by things going on in life rather than tapping into those deep wells. And I was really um, challenged when I was reading John Eldridge's book, Resilient. He says this, he says, like a tree sends its roots deep down into the subterranean world. We must learn to tap into the presence of God where he resides within us deep in our inmost being. Mm. And so, you know, we have to realize we are living in this spiritual battle, you know, between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. And these Nephilim hosts have partnered with the spiritual forces of darkness to destroy us. Mm. And their strategy is to do it slowly bit by bit. So we don't recognize it. And it's a little bit like the proverbial frog in the pot of boiling hot water, right? The frog thinks it's enjoying this jacuzzi bath. Meanwhile, it's getting boiled alive. And as I mentioned, you know, one of the most powerful drivers of mind control is fear. And, you know, I love the fact that the creator knows this about us. He knows that not only will fear weaken our immune system, but it pulls us down to that lower emotional frequency range where we believe the lies that are mm-hmm. swirling down there. And that's why he tells us to fear not. And in second Timothy one, seven, he talks about, he says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And that's one of the ones that I've stood by, um, in 20, since 2020, um, I've, I've just, the Lord gave that to me in 2020. I said, okay, I am pouring into this passage. Yes. And when you realize that it, Paul wrote that passage to Timothy during a time where Timothy was under great persecution. Well, the entire church was Mm -hmm. from Nero. Mm-hmm. And Timothy was leading the church in Ephesus, and he knew that at any time Nero's secret police could capture him and torture him in barbaric ways. And so, the spirit of fear 
was crouching at his doorstep. And mm. Paul recognized that Paul discerned that. And so he's encouraging Timothy not to give in to that spirit of fear because it's so important. We have a sound mind. Well, that, that word sound mind in the Greek is a compound word and it is two Greek words. It's, um, sozo and froneo and so what what sozo means is to be saved or delivered so it's essentially it implies someone that's been rescued someone that's been revived delivered salvaged and protected and so it can mean like rescuing someone from the verge of death because you're breathing new life into them wow and then froneo is it means intellect. It's the total frame of thinking. So that would include rationale, logic, emotions. It essentially is everything that has to do with the mind. So then when you combine those two Greek words together, what it means is a mind that has been delivered, rescued, salvaged, protected, a mind that is safe and secure. And uh, Rick Renner, um, one of his books, called the sparkling gems from Greek, from the Greek, he writes this, he says, when your mind is guarded by the word of God, you think differently. When the word of God is allowed to work in your mind, it safeguards your emotions. It defends your mind from demonic assault and it shields you from the arrows the enemy may try to shoot in your direction or in order to arouse a spirit of fear inside of you. So I love that in the sense that we do not have to live in fear. Mm -hmm. You know, we can pull from the resilience of the power of God that lives within us. And that's what that passage means. And so I just want to encourage people. We don't know what is in store for 2024. I believe good things are in store. Mm -hmm. um, the Lord is just doing some amazing work around our nation and around the world. Yeah. But we also know that, you know, difficult things may, um, we may experience. And so we have to tap in just like Paul and Silas did and find that inner strength that is within the hope that we have in Jesus. He is our living hope. And that means we're never without hope. Yes. Amen to that. I was given a word, um, to share with our church the last Sunday of December. And it's some, something very similar to that because we don't, we don't know what 2024 will bring much the same way, obviously that we didn't know what the years prior, you know, brought. And, you know, the Lord specifically gave me uh, Jesus's words where he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he mm -hmm. was talking obviously to his disciples. And that's one of the things that I was really honing in on during that message is because we, we are coming into um, a year of elections. We know, what happened the last elections we know what happened back in 2020 and it's not to instill fear in anyone on the contrary it's for us to understand that jesus has our tomorrow the lord has our tomorrow mm -hmm. and and we are approaching end time events we have been for a very long time but i think that some things are just culminating and getting to a place where we are recognizing some of those signs, right? And so um, as we come into the year, may we have that, I guess, spirit of discernment, mm -hmm. boldness, much like what Paul had, um, 
not fearing man, but fearing God. And, uh, and, and let not our hearts be troubled because, you know, the Lord has overcome the, the world anyway. He's, he's the one that gives us the victory. He's victorious already. And so, yeah, hardship will come. We're not promised that hardship won't come. Mm -hmm. It will. And, uh, you know, there, there may be some things that might come, uh, our way, or maybe in, in our nation or in the world that may appear as fearsome, but we are not to fear what's to come or uh, what the enemy might throw at us. We're, we're to fear the Lord and just uh, continue to be resilient and continue to live for him and serve him and worship him through the storms and mm -hmm. praise him through the difficulties. And so uh, I love how you, how you pretty much brought that to uh, pretty much a conclusion for for today. Thank you so much for that. There's so much to learn from the word of God and to learn from the lives of many of these apostles and the disciples. And we, we got to experience a little bit of it during our trip to Greece. I think that we only scratched the surface, but at the same time, it really did bring a lot of um, new revelation to us. Mm -hmm. So I'm really grateful for that. And I'm so, so grateful to God that you were able to come on that trip with us because oh, it was, I am too. You were a blessing. Thank oh, you. Life-changing, <laughs> life-changing. Amazing. Yes. Amazing. So talk just a real quick bit about your upcoming projects. I kind of know a little bit about them, but let, let yeah. our audience know so that they can get excited about it. Well, what I'm most excited about is what you mentioned in the beginning that um, my book is being translated into Spanish. It already has been. Yes. And um, Pastor Marcia is working diligently to do the final proofreading, yep. making sure everything is accurate. And then um, my our, my publisher is working on it as well. Mm -hmm. So we're thinking um, either end of January or mid-February, it will be available. So stay tuned. Yes, I definitely will be, um, you know, posting it on my Instagram channel, which is Laura Sanger, 444 Hertz. Mm -hmm. um, people can also reach me on Telegram. I am working on my second book right now. Uh, we haven't landed on a title. So the working title is impact of the Nephilim agenda today. And I made just the Lord just helped me make tremendous headway, um, in this last writer's retreat. So I'm super excited about that. And, uh, yeah, we're just, um, plugging away, moving forward. Just thankful to what the Lord is doing. Yeah. You're going to have to share with uh, me about that writer's retreat because I've had a book in the making for a number of years now, and I can't seem to finalize it, but I'm hoping that I can at some point. Yeah, it, it is, it is hard. It's hard to carve out time to it write. It is. And to yeah. be not just, you know, to find a place where you're not distracted. Because I don't know about you, but if I'm in the kitchen, if I'm in the living room, I'll look around and I'll start, oh, I should move that away from there. Oh, I should throw that away. Oh, I should pick that up. I should clean that. And it's hard. Yes. It's really hard. So, but we're looking forward to your new projects and I cannot wait for the Spanish version of your book uh, to come out. I know that that's going to be soon, soon. So, uh, so people can find you at, say again. Uh, my website is no longer enslaved.com. So that's the best place to start. And I have articles on there on my podcast. I've been on are listed there and people can order my book. It's also 
on Audible. I narrated it. So if people would prefer to listen, um, it's available that way as well. That's great. And you're on social media as? Yes. Instagram and Telegram, Laura Sanger, 444 Hertz. I also have a YouTube channel where I have a 10-part series called The Impact of the Nephilim Agenda Today. I also have a seven-part series on um, transformation through spiritual mapping. And that, my YouTube channel is called No Longer Enslaved. Awesome. We'll put those links underneath our description in the YouTube channel. So uh, thank you all uh, for tuning in. And thank you so much, my dear friend. Oh, it's been wonderful to relive our trip to Greece. I know, I know. And there's just so much more, I'm sure. But thank you for taking the time to sit with us. And I appreciate your ministry so very much. We pray a blessing upon you, your family uh, in this coming year and upon your ministry. I know it's going to grow. I know that uh, many, many people need to learn and hear these uh, kinds of messages. So I so appreciate what you're bringing forth so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you all once again for joining us and be sure to share this with your friends and like subscribe and uh, we will see you again next week. So God bless you. Thank you for joining Table Talk. Take care.